Good morning, Brooklyn. Good morning. Hello up there, everybody. Uh, who in here is a local? Holy smokes. Thank you for having me in your town. Uh, I am from Denver. This weekend has been such a gift. Uh, yesterday, I got to see uh, one of my college friends. He and I have become really good friends over the last couple years, but we haven't seen each other for nine years. And I don't know about you, but the first decade after college, it feels like lifetimes ago. And it was such a gift to hear about his life. He, he lives in Brooklyn. Um, also, my younger cousin, Jess, uh, moved to Brooklyn two years ago to pursue her art. And um, Jess is my younger, she was the cousin that was a toddler that I got to babysit. And now, hanging out with her all of yesterday, I realized I want to be like you when I grow up. Um, if you don't have somebody younger in your life that you want to be like when you grow up, I highly recommend it. Uh, and in fact, I think we have an example. Oh, yeah, that's one of her pieces. That she, isn't that incredible? Yeah, such a gift. And then the, the last really exciting part of this weekend is my partner, Olya. She was able to join me last minute, and so we have had a blast. She is full of enthusiasm, so my feet are tired today, but I am deeply thankful. I learned a couple things about the differences between Denver and New York City over this weekend. For example, in Denver, when you look up, you see the Rocky Mountains, which is wonderful. In New York City yesterday morning, when I looked up at my friend's apartment, I saw his uh, neighbor across the street naked getting ready for their day. In uh, New York City, when you raise your hand, a cab stops. In Denver, when you raise your hand, you get a high five. Sometimes it's a high five. In Denver, when you are asked what you do, you are often being asked, what do you do for fun? In New York City, oh, <laughs> that's great. In New York City this weekend, when I've been asked by people who live here what I do, it was often connected to, what is my hustle? <laughs> there is a hustle here that I love. It has such a life to it, and it also seems to have a little bit of an underbelly to it. Do you know what I mean? Uh, you know, hustle has followed me all of my life. My mother uh, is a saint for keeping me alive. And uh, here, here's a perfect example. When I was a really young child, uh, well, I started walking when I was nine months old. So let's just start there. And then I quickly decided, apparently, that I wanted full freedom in life at one years old, including clothes. So I would, at any chance I got, escape my stroller and escape my clothes to the point that my mom would dress me with my clothes on backwards and then put a strip of duct tape over the stroller so that I couldn't escape. And I don't know if you remember, I don't even know if they're still around. Do you remember those umbrella strollers? They had like the cloth back and they fold up really tight. So my mom loved using those when we would go to clothing stores because they were easy to take up and down the escalators. And so one day we were at a clothing store and she was looking at the rack of clothes and that terrifying moment that I can only imagine as a parent happened where she looked down and it was, I was gone. The stroller was gone, I was gone. And she entered panic mode, very understandably. And so she started searching the clothing store for me and then the intercom turned on. <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, we have a naked two-year-old here at the 
<laughs> my mom jokes that she hesitated for a moment about thinking if she would claim me. <laughs> As an adult, I definitely have compassion for that. And uh, what, what ultimately happened, she found out, is I found a way to shimmy towards the bottom of the stroller between the footrest and the, and, the, and the seat to get my feet on the ground so that I could flip the stroller on my back and start walking through the store. I'm kind of proud of that still. <laughs> Needless to say, a unique kind of drive has followed me. It's even served me at points in my life until it didn't. You know, I remember before I came out as gay within the Christian tradition that I am from, I had a part in me that I don't think I knew at the time, but now looking back is very clear, where I had hoped that maybe my accomplishments or my awards or the honors that I had acquired over my short life may help those who may struggle when I came out. And then, <clears throat> excuse me, after I came out, I had hoped that my hustle as a young female entrepreneur would help. Maybe if I started three companies before I'm 30, then we could get there. Maybe if I finish high school at 17 and then get my seminary degree by 23, maybe that will do it. Maybe that will do it. But you know what? It's amazing how quickly we can come face to face with the reality of what hustle often requires from us. And I came face to face with it during a staff meeting with that mental health organization that Mira so generously acknowledged. Kessid Wellness is a mental health nonprofit that I founded to make counseling affordable for everybody because I believe everybody deserves access to a therapist that they can afford. But what's interesting is I would actually say our vision is not what makes us unique, though I 100% believe in it. What actually makes Kessid unique is our staff culture. I believe with everything in my heart that we need to transform what it is to be a mental health therapist in our world today. I don't know if you know, but up to two out of three therapists burn out in the industry within the first two years after their graduate program. Let's hold that for a second, church. In a space for wellness, our practitioners are burning out left and right. So I knew from the very beginning of Kessid, we need to do it differently. We need to raise new questions and invite new ways, which is why this day when I entered into our staff meeting, I knew that the only thing that I could do was be honest with them. So I said to our team, have you ever worked at a place where you trusted the leader and you thought everything was going smoothly? You know, work is hard, work can be stressful, but we're all in this. And then one day you show up to work and that leader is gone. And they may be gone for this reason or that reason. Usually it's a reason that we wish that they had asked for help sooner or had been honest about sooner. And I am here today telling you, I don't want to be that leader. 
Last week, I got diagnosed with adrenal fatigue. And in case you don't know what adrenal fatigue is, your adrenal gland is what supports the secretion of hormones, and you get adrenal fatigue when too much cortisol, which is your stress hormone, has been surging through your body for too long. So here I am, a licensed therapist, a founder and CEO of a Boomi mental health nonprofit who just got diagnosed with my body literally collapsing because of stress. At this point, I weighed 105 pounds from my symptoms getting so extreme. I had nausea all day long. I lost half of my hair. And I would wake up every night at 3 a.m. in a pool of sweat. And I can't tell you what I expected to hear from my staff. All I knew is that I was at the crux of needing to show up and acknowledge I, too, am invited to live into this vision. I am no separate from our team. But I can tell you this. I did not expect the first person to speak to be our intern who said, Heather, I want you to know that you give me hope entering this industry because now I have the courage to be human. Or when my programs manager followed her and he said, I've been in this industry for over 10 years and not one time has a supervisor acknowledged their own need to support their own health or mental health needs. So not only do I thank you, but I want you to know I have a deeper trust in this organization and in you, and I want to follow you. And then our regional supervisor jumped in and said, take care of you. It's like living water, friends. And it reminds me of one of my very favorite stories in the New Testament. And it's a story about Jesus and a man who is called the rich young ruler. And Jesus meets this man as he is walking toward Jerusalem, which is really interesting because that would be the last time he walks to Jerusalem because it would be there that he would be murdered and crucified. And so we are going to jump into that story together today. And I also want to acknowledge I have rewritten this sermon about five times. <laughs> so there are not going to be slides behind me for you to be able to read along. Uh, and some of it is because uh, coming into this space of New York City has invited me to consider the words today. So if you would, follow along with your ears. I'm going to read through this story and we'll, we'll do this together, okay? All right. So we're going to pick up, it's, uh, we're reading from Mark 10, and we'll start in verse 17. And this is how the story unfolds. As Jesus, was walk, as Jesus was starting out on his way to Jerusalem, a man came running up to him, knelt down and asked, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now to give you a little bit of context, I want you to imagine somebody from Tribeca wearing Alexander McQueen running on a dirt trail up to a vagabond rabbi 
who is my age, <laughs> kneeling and saying, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus responds, let me flip my notes. Why do you call me good, Jesus asked. Only God is truly good. Now I love this response because it slightly convinces me that Jesus may have been a New Yorker if he lived today. He gets straight to the point. You don't know me. Why do you call me good? And at the same time, I think Jesus is being so deeply subversive in how he is inviting this man to actually acknowledge are you asking what I really think that you're asking? Do you really see me? Jesus goes on. But to answer your question, you know the commandments. You must not murder. You must not commit adultery. You must not steal. You must not testify falsely. You must not treat anyone and honor your father and mother. Jesus handed this man his systematic theology. Now, I grew up in the evangelical Christian tradition throughout my entire childhood. You could say my childhood orbited church like Earth orbits the sun. Perhaps some of you know what that's like. So it would be like Jesus saying to me, Heather, you know John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. You did the altar call. But to answer, oh, I'm sorry, you did the altar call. And then, and then the man says, teacher, I've obeyed all these commands since I was young. Mm. Have you ever checked all the boxes? Have you ever gotten to the place where you have suddenly realized that you're on the other side of that systematic theology only to find yourself longing and more lonely than you were before? I have. By the way, I think what is really fascinating about this story is we don't know this man's name. Imagine your world being so defined by your power and privilege that the only thing you're called is that. The rich, young ruler. And I think this is especially fascinating to consider in this city. I read an article this week that was published this year that there are 84 billionaires in New York City that claim this place as their primary residence. Those 84 people in this city of 9 million have a total net worth of $469.7 billion, which is larger than the gross domestic product of Austria. That doesn't seem to surprise any of you. <laughs> And this is where I really love this story. The next verse says, looking at the man, Jesus felt genuine love for him. I wonder when was the last time that anybody had courage to look into this man's eyes and hold them long enough that this man could see his compassion.
You know, I have a definition of compassion that I've really grown to love over the years as a person and also as a therapist who meets with people week in and week out. And it's very simple. Compassion is being with suffering. In fact, I heard one leader say, to live the full life, you must have the courage and compassion to bear the responsibility of the needs of others. One must want to bear this responsibility. In fact, the opposite of compassion is not hatred. It's narrow self-interest. What an invitation for this man. And so Jesus ends this story by saying, there is still one thing you haven't done, he told him. Go and sell all of your possessions and give the money that you have to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. At this, the man's face fell and he went away sad for he had many possessions. And you know what? I don't blame him. Have you ever been faced with an invitation in your life to release your prestige? Have you ever been invited to enter a room, perhaps it's a family dinner, where suddenly you realize when you leave that room, you are viewed completely different than when you walked in? Have you ever been invited to do something as ridiculous as releasing your inheritance that this man worked so diligently for that he was known as the rich young ruler? You know, friends, what's really interesting is the only way I've heard this story interpreted is that this man didn't follow Jesus because he went away in his shame that day. But what if he did? What if it just took him a little bit? What if it took him a couple years? What if it took him 27 years and building three companies and having all the prestige in the world and then coming out and then getting diagnosed with adrenal fatigue? But what if he did? And what if we did? You know, net worth is connected to power and privilege, but it is not connected to freedom. How does that verse go in 2 Corinthians? Where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. I think it's also really important to consider that the Bible was not written to and for the privileged. It was written to and for the oppressed. So I found myself this weekend in New York walking around this lively hustle all around me. And you know what kept me most off guard? Was how much imagery and symbols and murals and sayings there are across this entire place about this conversation of love, about this conversation of compassion. In fact, as I was rewriting my sermon last evening, my partner Olya sent me a picture. And it was this picture of the back of a delivery truck. And it was a beautiful mural. And on the mural, it said, I shoot kisses. 
on the back of a delivery truck, my friends. <laughs> I am amazed by how much there seems to be a longing for love and compassion in this space. I believe with all of my heart that compassion overturns empires. And I actually wonder if compassion may be the most innovative thing that we can do in the world and potentially even the most threatening thing we can do in this world. And that begins with ourselves, doesn't it? And then it extends to others. Emily Nagowski, who is a mental health therapist and also a nationally known best-selling author, released her latest book called Burnout. And I think that she has a fascinating way of capturing this conversation of compassion and resilience. By the way, resilience is the gift of compassion. And this is what Emily says. White men grow on an open level field. White women grow on far steeper and rougher terrain because the field wasn't made for them. Women of color grow not just on a hill, but on a cliffside over the ocean, battered by wind and waves. Amen to that. <laughs> None of us chooses the landscapes in which we're planted. If you find yourself on an ocean-battered cliff, your only choice is to grow there or fall into the ocean. So if we transplant, a survivor of the steep hill and cliff to the level field, natives of the field may look at this survivor and wonder why she has so much trouble trusting people or systems or even her own bodily sensations. Why is this tree so bent and gnarled? It's because that is what it took to survive in the place where she grew. A tree that's fought wind and gravity and erosion to grow strong and green on a steep cliff is going to look strange and out of place when moved to the level playing field. The gnarled, wind-blown tree from an oceanside cliff might not conform with our ideas of what a tree should look like, but it works well in the context where it grew. And that straight, tall tree wouldn't stand a chance if it was transplanted to the cliffside. Wherever you find yourself in this conversation of hustle, however you identify with this story between Jesus and the rich young ruler, may you know that Christ looks on you with genuine love. Would you know that compassion is the revolution that we are invited to participate in. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the gift of this space called church, which is a weekly home that we get to come back to and remember. Remember that God is love. To remember that God is light as it says in 1 John. May we manifest that light in the world and remember our of Godness. 
And wherever we find ourselves in this journey of love and longing and loneliness or power and privilege and identity, may we rest in the space where your yoke is easy and your burden is light. May we have the courage to show up in our authenticity. And may we have the courage to live with compassion so that we may participate in the connection that is between each of us and all of us because we are indeed called back to oneness that we find in the beautiful, the subversive, and sometimes the deeply confusing ways of Christ. Thank you for meeting us in our process. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.